Hello, I'm Llewellyn Kane, the host of White House Chronicle. You and I live in the electric century. You may think, just casually, that you live in the computer century, the high-tech century. Think about it for one moment, and you'll realize that all of the technology we have depends on electricity. And that technology extends from the vacuum cleaner that you have at home to the largest uh, uh, data mining installation in the country. Energy, electricity, and we are going to be using more of it. That is why this program comes to the annual meeting of the Edison Electric Institute every year. This time it's in Orlando, Florida, to look at developments in electric power. And the story here is that we're electrifying everything. We're electrifying transportation, manufacturing, even down to the smallest printing things with electromagnetic printers. It's an electric century. Enjoy it. Maria Pope is President and Chief Executive Officer of Portland General Electric. She is in a unique position to discuss forest fires and the challenges faced by utilities with the ignition and the control and sometimes the avoidance of the scourge of wildfires. Maria, welcome to the broadcast. You are right in the center of the fire belt. Before you worked in a utility, you worked in the forest industry. So you know a great deal about forests and fires. Why are they so bad at the moment? We have, unfortunately, a perfect set of conditions for wildfire. Across this country, 44% of our territory in the entire country, and predominantly much of the West, is very, very dry, subject to extreme drought or very, very high levels of drought. And with high winds, that can create an environment where forest fire can spread very, very rapidly. The utilities industry is famous for its collaboration. It's not subject to the normal concerns of antitrust, and they help each other all over the place. People jump in trucks and drive across country to help with an emergency. It's one of the more endearing and attractive features of the utility business. What is the organization that collaborates that? when it comes to forest fires. So as you know, utilities, we are essential service providers. People depend on our electricity, not just to power their lives and their schooling and work and everything else, but also in rural areas to pump water, critical for firefighting as well as for livestock and themselves. Through the Electric Sector Coordinating Council, which is how the utility industry, CEO group led, works with the highest levels of government, from the U.S. Forest Service to the Bureau of Land Management to even the FAA and beyond line of sight drone flying, we're able to work and really work to, on new technologies through the national labs and the Department of Energy, but also work on things daily uh, to fight fires. So the Wildfire Task Force, the ESCC Wildfire Task Force, which I chair along with two colleagues from rural cooperatives um, and power authorities is allows us to work together to respond, to detect, and to mitigate wildfires to the best of our ability. 
Are wildfires going to get progressively worse? Are they going to be everybody's problem? And can they be controlled with better forest management? As you know, the utility industry has been lowering our carbon output and reducing the impacts of global warming and climate change. We also have been working very collaboratively with the U.S. Forest Service and with the Bureau of Land Management to reduce the fuel loading in the rights-of-way as well as areas adjacent to the rights-of-way. But as we look at climate change, many of the dead and dying timber that we've seen needs to be addressed more proactively to be able to reduce the overall risk of wildfire. When you say more proactively, get it out of there by burning it, by pulling it out, by... Probably all of the above set of solutions. With the situation that we have today, and where wildfires have already burned three million acres across the West, and we've not really even started the summer season, we need to work collaboratively and with a sense of urgency to solve these problems. We think of wildfires as being sometimes inadvertently started by utilities with arcing, with broken lines. But in fact, utility operations are severely uh, influenced, impacted by wildfires that are none of their problem. At least they didn't start them. That's correct. The number one source of ignitions for wildfires is actually people ourselves. Cigarettes being thrown out of cars, um, even uh, fireworks or firecrackers you've seen in Columbia Gorge region in Oregon and Washington as well as in Southern California, and campfires that have been left unintended. Sometimes you'll also see industrial activities where let's say the uh, ignitions um, pipe from a vehicle strikes a rock and sparks a large fire. So what we've done as utilities is we've invested in our equipment, we've improved and repaired its reliability and consistency, but we've even created situational awareness where we can watch our equipment to ensure that if there is any spark, we can respond as quickly as possible. The utility industry across the board and in collaboration with those from Australia and elsewhere have worked diligently over the last number of years on new technologies. My final question, you've just touched on it, and that is this is no longer uniquely an American problem. This is a global problem. Australia has fires, Greece had terrible fires, in fact, the whole Mediterranean region has had terrible fires. Asia has had some of the worst fires we've ever seen. Latin America has them. Are we going to see more fires? Because they, too, are a tremendous contributor to carbon in the atmosphere, the fires themselves. There's no question. So we need to work collaboratively together to solve prevention and to mitigate wildfires. If we do see them starting, to be able to detect them very early to put them out, um, and then if we do find ourselves in a situation to respond and to recover as quickly as possible. Thank you very much. It's great to see you. Thank you, Lou, and it's wonderful to talk with you. Chris Underwood is a Vice President and Managing Director at 1898 Co., which is the consulting arm of Burns & McDonnell, a big architect engineering firm that works largely with utilities, but also with everything else from building bridges to oil refineries. Welcome to the broadcast, Chris. Thanks what for having me, What do you do at 1898, and why is it called 1898, not Bazaar McCall? <laughs> so I, I'm the general manager and, and managing director of 1898 Co. In that capacity, I lead and manage the entire organization. We currently have about 300 consultants 
focused at predominantly, like you said, the electric utility industry. Uh, it's called 1898 & Co. because we're, we're addressing the issues that are facing the industry right now, and Burns & McDonnell has done a tremendous job of serving the energy industry. Um, we do you know, phenomenal work. It's a brand that's come associated with um, designing and building America's and the world's most critical infrastructure. But it's not necessarily a brand that's top of mind. We think about the business and technology needs that are changing and emerging. So we, we uh, rebranded ourselves as 1898 & Co. to um, differentiate the conversation, to let clients know that you, you know to come and trust Burns & McDonald to design and build your infrastructure. Did you know that we have these additional capabilities that you may not think of when you think when of Burns & McDonald? When you do your planning, you're advising to an electric utility. Are you telling them how to get where they want to go, or are you telling them where they should go and how to get there? We're telling them where they should go based upon, uh, again, our understanding of the industry, of their business, and that's, that's one of our biggest differentiators is that we've been serving this industry for over 120 years, and so we provide advice and strategies that are grounded in operational realities because of our intimate understanding of, of the We're industry. driving towards a net zero uh, utility industry, not putting any carbon into the air. That is creating a revolution, maybe the largest revolution in electric utilities, electric production has seen since the creation of the utilities by Edison and his uh, colleagues. Uh, can we... Uh, can we look forward to radical changes, things looking very different going forward? We can, and, and we are, and, and that's the word I use. People talk about the energy transition. I, we've talked about it before, an energy revolution is truly what it is, and, and yes, I think you know the conversations we're having here today are evidence that the industry is ready to make the big, bold steps. How will the consumer, the people who watch this program and listen to Sirius XM radio, uh, how will the consumer feel this revolution? The consumer will feel this revolution um, in everything that they do. The revolution will include how you and I as electricity consumers interact with our utilities. So uh, transparency, visibility, customer choice, all those things that haven't historically been a part of the equation are, are here and they're coming and, and will be a larger part of the equation moving forward. Are we going to be able to get off natural gas or are we going to be able to capture the carbon and therefore use natural gas? I think natural gas will always have a part of the equation, so likely sequestration will, will come into play into the future. And I think it's needed in the near term to bridge us to the ultimate state of, of zero carbon. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I bet you are, Chris. Okay. Thank you for coming on Thank our broadcast. Thank you, well. I appreciate Cheers. everything you do. Eric Sarge is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Florida Power and Light, and they are distinguished for being in the front of the net zero movement. And his company announced very recently that it was heading towards what they call real zero. Eric, would you tell me what real zero is? Sure, real zero is the goal of getting to actually producing electricity with no carbon. So not using offsets, not planting trees somewhere else in the world, but actually taking uh, the, the technology to a new level 
where we're able to reliably and affordably produce electricity for our customers while we're actually producing no carbon. How you going to bring this now. How are you going to do this? So it's going to be a march. This is not a sprint. Between now and 2045, we're going to be installing a lot of solar and battery technology, something we're very familiar with. I already have uh, in Florida uh, nearly 4,000 megawatts of solar in operation today. We also commissioned just a few months ago the world's largest solar-powered battery. It's a 40-acre battery, a 409-megawatt facility. And that's the beginning of what will be a march to utilizing a lot Maybe of solar. Maybe you would tell our, our viewers and listeners what a solar battery is. So this is a, a massive battery facility covering 40 acres that is charged by a, a solar facility that exists today right next to it. So whenever the sun comes up, it actually charges the batteries. Uh, and then when the sun gets low or below the horizon, uh, and in Florida, we're still using a lot of power then because of air conditioning primarily, but also people turning their lights on. The battery kicks on and we're using effectively stored solar energy to continue to power, in this case, uh, over 15,000 homes in the area um, while the sun is, is below the horizon. So it's a way for us to actually extend the life, if you will, of a solar facility uh, beyond the daylight hours. Why does your company in particular have such an advanced position in eliminating carbon? You know, it's a great question, and I think it really goes more than anything else to a culture of embracing innovation. We've been in the renewables business as a corporation now for almost three decades. Uh, we, we pioneered uh, some technologies of, of being able to commercially deploy, whether it was wind, uh, large-scale solar facilities in other parts of the country. Uh, we built the largest solar PV facility in America in Florida back in 2009. Um, and we've been a pioneer in many ways of different technologies. So we're comfortable with actually taking ideas and in a small way starting to develop them and making sure that they can be commercially used and then deploying it in a very large scale. I think other thing is, is we have a philosophy. And that is, is that you don't have to be one or the other. You don't have to be either clean uh, and expensive or affordable and dirty, if you will, or have high emissions. We believe you can be reliable, affordable, and clean, and we've demonstrated that. We've proved it over the decades. You had an early commitment to nuclear power. Has that waned? Not at all. Um, we have four units operating in Florida, three outside of Florida as well for next area energy resources. But in Florida, I have two large nuclear facilities that will continue to operate um, well into hopefully the 2050s. We're in the process of getting second license extension for both of those, and they are very important elements of this plan to get to zero carbon. How much of your mixture of generation is nuclear? Today in Florida, it's 20%. And Which is will, the same as the national It's average. about the same as the national average. Um, that will over time, on a percentage basis, uh, go down because we will be deploying more solar. Uh, to the point where by 2045 I expect to be uh, over 80% solar. Um, nuclear power will be probably in the mid-teens at that point because we are also experiencing growth in Florida. We're adding customers. Um, and then we plan to actually take existing gas-fired generation. Today we own and operate the most fuel-efficient combined cycle turbines in the world. 
we'll convert those to actually burn hydrogen that is produced from electrolyzers powered by solar facilities. So what we call green hydrogen, with the goal being emissions of water vapor. Can you, uh, can you, uh, that's very nice if you can pull it off, can you uh, burn uh, hydrogen or use hydrogen in the same turbines as natural gas? It has a very different energy density. So the answer is today, yes we can, but only on a blended basis. Uh, so our goal right now is we're building an electrolyzer um, that's co-located next to an existing gas facility and solar facility. The solar facility will power the electrolyzer. Uh, we will take water and split the hydrogen molecule off of it, and then we will blend it into the gas stream and burn it in one of our gas turbines uh, at this facility. That will be operational next year. What is the water you use for that? Is it sea water or fresh water? Fresh water. And well you, water. You have to treat it, I assume. We do, um, and that's all part of the process. And the electrolyzer, how much of that technology is now deployed and understood? Well, there are several different electrolyzers that have been utilized um, in, in, the, uh, in the electric industry, but electrolyzers in other parts of, of the industrial manufacturing base have been um, used for many, many years. It's well understood technology. Um, it's one of the areas that gives me comfort on this, is that we know that electrolyzers work quite well on being able to produce hydrogen. The thing that we're doing is, is we're powering it using a solar facility, um, and then we need to actually continue to work to get the cost down. Today, it's not cost effective, um, but much like many of the technologies that we've deployed in years past, initially they weren't cost effective. The wind turbines that we initially deployed um, were not cost effective as compared to other technologies at the time. Today, we're able to actually sell electricity from our more than 12,000 wind turbines that we have in operation at costs that are less than the, uh, the operating costs of a coal facility. The electrolyzer is the key element in hydrogen if we're going to have it as a regular dependable fuel, correct? The electrolyzer is a key component to it, but again, creating hydrogen through an electrolyzer is well established. Typically right now, you just end up powering the electrolyzer by burning some other fossil fuel. And so it defeats the purpose, if you will, Sure. of burning one fuel, fossil fuel, creating more carbon emissions in order to produce a clean fuel. Our goal is just to actually leverage another existing technology that we know quite well, because we're the largest producer of electricity in the world from solar and wind. So we know how to actually build solar facilities. We know how to operate them. And now this will just power a different piece of equipment. Um, instead of going on the grid, it'll go into an electrolyzer. Eric, what is the shape of your load? Uh, and the fact that you have so many retired people, does that affect it? No, I would say um, it's interesting. You know, the demographics of Florida, um, we do have many retired people, thankfully. They come from all over the world to retire in Florida. But the average age of Floridian is 39 years old. Uh, and this is a state that is growing, uh, on average, about 1,000 people a day. Those are not retirees only that are coming to Florida. It's many people who are coming to the state um, to locate their businesses, to grow their businesses, or to start new lives and new industries. And which is your service area in Florida? So we cover a large swath of Florida that goes from basically Pensacola in the Panhandle uh, down to Miami, and then Naples up to Bradenton. Um, now there are 54 electric providers in Florida, 
Uh, we cover about two-thirds of the state. Uh, and then there are many other smaller ones that are municipals or cooperatives, along with several other investor-owned utilities. You mentioned Next Era. What was the impetus to get into wind and solar before they were popular and there was a crushing national demand to do it? Again, we saw the technology um, at the time, which was nascent, uh, as an opportunity to be able to provide customers with a diversified form of energy that also uh, did not produce emissions, nor did it use water. And both of them are precious resources, if you will. Uh, and we felt as if there was a real opportunity to develop this technology and to separate ourselves in many ways. But it's all grounded in the economics. It must be economically viable to be sustainable uh, over a long period of time, both economically as well as politically. And so our focus has always been really on making sure that any technology that we deploy is economically viable for the customer. So the other attributes, advantages that they may have, like not using water, not producing emissions, those become ancillary, albeit important, benefits for the customer. And finally, Eric, you say true zero. Real zero. Uh, does this mean this to the rest of the industry or to other players? No, I wouldn't say that. I'd say that it's uh, our approach is different. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with purchasing renewable energy credits or offsets, if you will. And, and, and I encourage people to go out and plant trees. I think that's, I think that's wonderful. But um, we have just taken an approach that um, we should be shooting for a higher goal, and that is to help um, not just our customers, but frankly, the entire economy, the state, and the country, um, and hopefully the world, if the uh, technology is, is adopted and the approach is adopted, on, on meeting the goals of getting all of our sectors to zero carbon. So transportation, agriculture, industrial, we shouldn't be satisfied until all of us reach that, but first thing we're gonna do is lead the way by by doing that in our company first. We're gonna demonstrate how we can do it, and then we're gonna help others get there if they choose to work with us. Eric, President of Florida Power and Light, yours is an inspiring message, thank you. It's a pleasure, thanks for having me. Thomas Kuhn has been President of the Edison Electric Institute since 1990, during which time the entire energy picture has changed. That was a time when natural gas was still in short supply but beginning to turn around, when coal was still a desirable fuel and when nuclear was still a possibility. The so-called renewables were still a dream in some people's eyes. Thomas Kuhn, welcome to the broadcast. It's great to have you here again, Lou. What can customers expect from utilities going forward that they don't get and haven't had to this point in oh, time? Oh, I think it's so much is going to change for the customers as, uh, as they're all driving electric vehicles, as they uh, even have more electric appliances than they do right now, as they're seeing the benefits of electricity on their jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, electricity has just been such a major driver of economic growth and improvement in people's lives, and that's going to continue. I talk to a lot of electric utilities, uh, from little local ones, mostly part of the rural electric cooperative system, to very large ones, the ones you represent, and they all tell me there's a terrible problem 
with sighting transmission lines and what is really most needed is transmission so that renewable energy from the far west can reach New York City, etc. cetera. Uh, what are we going to do about this not-in-my-backyard syndrome that seems to have the country by the throat? Well, I, I do think that as we uh, move more toward renewables, which aren't necessarily close, like wind is not necessarily close to where the usage is, that we do have to have more transmission. Transmission has been expanded at the local level, but what has been more difficult to build is the long-distance transmission lines. More right? west to east lines. Right, yeah. And, and I think that uh, that requires approvals from a number of states. I, the administration is very focused on additional transmission systems, and uh, I think we're going to need a situation where you're going to have to identify where those long-distance Can lines. federal policy affect this? It's a state issue and often a local issue where if you are getting no benefit from this power line going right. overhead, you don't want it going right. overhead. Yeah. Well, I think, we ha I, I think the feds can help, and I think that uh, you know, feds and, and groups of governors getting together and deciding that, uh, that this is really important and will benefit every state and every customer. Uh, I just think that uh, we're going to need to break through some of these things, but we have policymakers who agree on the importance of that, and I think that it will. In closing, which technology excites you the most? Well, I think the ones at the customer level really excite me the most because I see customers getting so excited uh, when they. Give me an example. Well, as an example, I've got an electric vehicle and I take it to my. Uh, uh, son's high school and their science class comes out and these kids are all over you know what that what that car can do how fast it is how uh, uh, how quiet it is how, uh, how simpler it is in terms of the not not a tremendous need for service in the future so these things are uh, and every you know every child uh, every you know from from the youngest ages, you know, is going around with, uh, you know, electric devices in their hands. Uh, and I just think that's going to, you know, it's, it's, I mean, they, they understand how important this is. What about electric motorcycles? I did some work with a company called Arctic many, many years ago oh, yeah. that had electric motorcycles, and their problem was silence. Right. They tried to create an artificial noise right. to sound like a motorcycle, right. and they, artificial noise is very annoying very quickly <laughs> as we know and they failed and they thought it was a terrible safety hazard what are we going to do about electrical vehicles well that's silence exactly, and safety exactly that's what people said about electric vehicles that they you know was it was a major negative that people talked about uh, electric vehicles uh, when they first started emerging and uh, it hasn't been an issue there hasn't there hasn't been a situation where electric vehicles are running over people because they can't, because they can't hear it. And the lawyers haven't heard about the problem. <laughs> right. Tom, congratulations you. on your long and very distinguished career in electricity. And you too, sir. That's our show for today. You can take off anything you like, but do keep the lights on. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.